Welcome to the Wake Up and Lead podcast. Everyone, this is my first time interviewing someone in person. I am really coveting the setup that I have right now. So if you're seeing this, um, shout out to Austin and United We Pray. And shout out to the donors of United We Pray who made this happen. <laughs> shout out to the donors of United We Pray who made this happen. Um, I am here with Austin Suter today, and we're going to have a conversation that is really, 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 really important that I know everybody can learn from. So welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me. This is awesome. So I'm I'm gonna jump I'm gonna jump right into it. Do it. Um, I want to know the race conversation. How did you get interested in that? Where did that begin for you? That's a good question because I grew up really rural. I grew up in the middle of nowhere, Virginia, Shenandoah Mountains. Not an area that's very diverse. And so, growing up, all of my friends, all of my family, um, you know, pretty much everybody was white. And I didn't I didn't have black friends until I got to college. And it was through, through relationships, through friendships, uh, that I began to get a sense of what different people's experience of America is, what their different experience of society is. And, uh, was really drawn to hearing about different people's experiences and learning from them and just realizing how, how different life can be mm -hmm. for so many folks. Yeah. So you... You went to college and that was the first time that you, you had friends that, that were different than you. Yeah, yeah, it was. And it was, it was really a series of relationships over, over the years and different friends, you know, <laughs> the, the, the first black friend I made in college, I was just in his wedding, you know, last month. That's awesome. uh, so we still keep in touch, talk most days. Um, but as those friendships grew and were deepened, you know, it's not like I met them and just jumped in like, Hey, so I, you know, noticed you're black. Tell me about that. <laughs> yeah. um, but like spending time in, in their homes, getting to know, getting to experience life together, um, seeing things like, um, even just how, how folks interacted with traffic stops and mm. that kind of thing just really got, I, I, I can't tell you why it, piqued my interest, but it, it definitely did as those relationships became, you know, I, they became people I cared about. So I yeah. wanted to learn about their lives. So it was almost like as they became your friends that you really cared about, did you start noticing certain ways that people interacted with them or you, you almost started feeling like a burden, yeah, if you will? I think that's right. Um, and over the years, hearing similar stories repeated, like, the number of black male friends I have who have been detained by police for no good reason. Like it's most of them. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, <laughs> you start hearing those same things over and over again. It, it, it gets to you and it, you know, yeah. that kind of thing really fires me up. Yeah. Was there a moment when you started recognizing that that was a theme and you had one of your buddies that you said, Hey, I've noticed this. Can you, like, can you tell me about this? Is this something that that you've experienced or, or do you have a problem with, with the way that that you're being treated? Well, I mean, the the policing issue, uh yeah, there were definitely moments um where friends experienced things and and those were aha moments, but I had a lot of like aha moments and realizations along the way because there was just so much I didn't know. Mm -hmm. Um, like I remember 
uh, I was a freshman in college when Barack Obama was elected the first time. Mm-hmm. And seeing what a big deal that was for my black friends, um, I, I didn't get it. I didn't yeah. get it at all. And uh, this is a theme of <laughs> me asking a lot of questions and friends like patiently bearing with me to to educate me. And so, yeah, I had my friend just explain to me why this was a big deal. And, you know, hearing from them about like things their parents went through just a generation ago. And now there's a black man in the White House like that. That's that's big. That's that's progress. Um, So, Hmm. yeah, a lot of moments like that along the way. You know, as I look at my own life and, and circles I've grown up in, I don't know that a lot of people had the experience that you do. Like I, I didn't necessarily get to college and all of a sudden find myself having a bunch of black friends and maybe some of the things that we get into today and some of the, the burden that you feel. I wonder if there's people almost like me who up until recently, there's just, there's almost not like an awareness yeah. of some of this stuff. Do you feel like that's, that's pretty common? Oh, I think it's really common. And I think it's, it's because we can live such segregated lives without, without meaning to. Um, and we need to remember that it was set up that way. Mm-hmm. Right. And it was set up that way because of racism mm-hmm. and white people literally would not allow minorities to live near them, work with them, go to church with them. And just because those laws went away doesn't mean everything immediately, you know, blended. Like look at a map of Birmingham Mm -hmm. and that was, you know, white people live here, black people live here. And that was law for a long time. And just because the laws went away doesn't mean people are going to up and move. And, you know, so that's a whole thing. So yeah, there, this can be hard for some people through, through no fault of their own Mm -hmm. to sort of build diverse relationships and have friends cross-culturally and, you know, do that work of, of educating themselves. But I mean, thankfully we're, we're sitting next to my library. Um, you know, you can, you can pick up a book and be friends with Frederick Douglass and have him teach you, you know, that there's a, there's more work you can do, um, to, to educate yourself. And honestly, that's, that's going to make for better conversations with your friends. Should God give you those kind of relationships mm-hmm. to, to dig in yourself and educate yourself and, yeah. and explain, Hey, I'm, I want to know, I want to understand and forgive me if this is a stupid question, but like, help me learn from you. Yeah. I mean, that sort of long education that I'm still, still experiencing happened in the context of friendships. Mm-hmm. So when I started getting friends who were from other cultures or ethnicities than myself, uh, I wasn't just peppering them with questions. And mm-hmm. it was as we experienced life together, things came up. But yeah. first it was a genuine friendship. Yeah. And that's, that's, I think, really important because you don't want to go treating people like resources. Yeah. Mm, that's Yeah. That, that's important. At that point, you'll have that trust and they know that you yeah. care and then it's worth their time and energy to to answer those questions and not just feel like a resource. Like you said, you mentioned Birmingham. I know a lot of listeners, you may not be in Birmingham. I'm in Birmingham, Alabama and Birmingham does have a reputation uh, and and it has a, 
a history that when you look at it, it can be a hard pill to swallow. But could you share just a little bit about Birmingham's history and then maybe maybe some of the the, the good things about maybe some of the progress we made, but then you also alluded to how just how just because laws were changed doesn't mean that, oh, we're good now. Yeah, I, I should preface this. I've been in Birmingham for a year. Mm-hmm. I'm certainly not an expert on the town or its history or, or where we're at now. But, you know, there was the the big event everybody remembers is the bombing at the 16th Street Baptist Church just just down the road mm-hmm. where four little girls were killed during a church service. And people remember the the Birmingham bus boycotts um, that Dr. King led and was arrested here and then, you know, famously penned the letter from Birmingham jail, which fun tidbit. uh, One of the recipients of that letter was the pastor of the church we're sitting in right now. Wow. It's amazing. I mean, it's just, it's all around us. Yeah. Um, (laughs) My drywall guy who worked in this office, his uncle booked Dr. King at the jail. Wow. Like we're just not that separated from that stuff. Yeah. It, it, you and I were talking about our parents' generation. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, very thankfully, lots of progress has been made. And, you know, I'm I'm in an interracial marriage, you know, living in Birmingham, Alabama, and that wouldn't have been possible a generation ago. Yeah. Right. But there's still still a lot of work to go. I mean, if you look at a map of Birmingham, uh, it's very segregated. People talk about going over the mountain. So right now we're in downtown Birmingham. This would be a, a pretty uh, minority. Um, yeah, majority minority, I guess. is mm-hmm. It's an awkward way to say it. But if you cross over the mountain, then you get into the suburbs where most of the white folks live. Mm-hmm. And so we cross the mountain oftentimes and come to work here, take our tax dollars back home, have the good schools, and, uh, you know, Schools in town are struggling. The mayor was just talking about that yesterday. Uh, it's hard to get groceries in this part of town. I mean, it's there's there's a lot of stuff that makes life harder for the folks who live here. Mm. And there's so many people over the mountain that probably don't even know that. Yeah. Interesting. You uh, can you tell the story about the church you were at in Washington recently, and and the comment that you heard about Birmingham that that really hit me about the magnitude of the reputa- reputation that Birmingham has. Yeah, so we were in the Tri-Cities area in Southeast Washington, which um, has its own racial history, and it was a sundown town. And the sundown town is a town where, and it was, it was not a secret, it was posted on the bridge coming into town. If you're a minority, you need to be gone by sundown or there will be violence. And so that was, that was Richland, Washington, and because of this reputation and treatment and things that went on there, it became known as the Birmingham of the Pacific Northwest. Goodness gracious. That's, it's crazy that, I mean, all the way out there about as far as you can get from here, Birmingham does have that reputation. Yeah. Man. Can I say this though? Yeah. Um, you know, I've been a part of this ministry for uh, five ish years now and uh, have done that from Washington DC and Charlotte, North Carolina and now Birmingham. And when I tell folks what I do in some of those other cities that might fancy themselves post-racial or, you know, that they've got this all figured out, I would sometimes get the question, you know, why, why do that? Why bother? It's 2023. We fixed all that. Um, I don't get that response in Birmingham. Mm. I get a lot of thank yous. Yeah. 
And it's, it's refreshing in a way to have folks acknowledge the problem mm -hmm. that we still have work to do. Yeah. I mean, it's like you said, it's not that far away. And yeah. so for anyone to just act like we're all good, it's, it would be and silly. I, that, that notion that we're all good, I don't think it's true anywhere. Yeah. Um, but it just doesn't fly down here. Like it, you can't, yeah. you can't get away with it. Well, speaking of what do you do? I am executive director at United We Pray, which is a ministry devoted to helping Christians pray and think about racial strife. Okay. So helping Christians think and pray about racial strife. I know I've been impacted by that because Austin has helped us a lot uh, at the company that I work for this year and won't go into all the details there, but he really has had a big impact on myself and a lot of the folks that work there. But one of the, th the things that I remember the first time that you met with us being an organization that that cares about caring for everyone mm -hmm. um, and not discriminating and everything like that. I mean, if you look at the company I work for, everybody actually is white. And so that for years had been something that we had talked about. It's not like an elephant in the room. It, we we talk about that and you want to do it right and, and, and you don't want to force things and everything. But at the same time, I think somebody asked the question, like, what do we do? Like, do we go and serve? Do we do we do this? Do we do that? And I, I remember you and Isaac just said, um, we want you to pray about it. So we've done that for a year and it's been great, but I was kind of shocked when I heard that. And I imagine given what your organization is called, y'all are just trying to get Christians to just pray about this more. Yeah. I mean, Isaac, uh, Isaac Adams, pastor at, uh, Iron City Church. Can't remember my church name. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on a lot of cold meds. I'm very sorry. Um, he founded this ministry in 2017 in the aftermath of the events in Ferguson, Missouri and the killing of Michael Brown. And he was really struck that Christians were talking a lot about this stuff, but weren't praying about it. Mm. And he theorized that our conversations would be better if we were prayed up. Mm -hmm. And I think he's right. And not only that, when we're talking about the issue of racism, I mean, the more you get into it, the more you see how many things it touches. Um, Isaac calls it the Velcro sin because in one conversation about racism, you could be talking about housing policy, you could be talking about hiring practices, you could be talking about law enforcement, you could be talking about politics and mm -hmm. elections. It, it touches so many different things. And the enormity of the task should drive us to our knees mm -hmm. because we need God to do what we can't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we definitely need God. Um, you're right. I mean, I think a lot of times we do talk about it and not pray enough and only God can really do the work here that yeah. we need him to do. Um, but I guess you've got a podcast. Obviously, we're in the studio right now, and I know that y'all do a lot of things. You have some amazing blogs. Um, what what are what are some of the things that, that y'all are doing as an organization to, to help with this cause? Yeah, you know, trying to produce written resources, trying to produce, I mean, the podcast is our most popular offering. That's how most people know about us. Um, and then from that has just come a lot of other partnerships and folks wanting to have us out. And mm -hmm. as we travel, as we teach, podcast, write, I mean, prayer is is the main emphasis in all mm -hmm. of it. Like um, when we go and, and travel to events like in Washington, you know, there's a time of teaching, but then there's extended time of corporate prayer where we get the church praying, not just us praying for the church, get everyone in the room, sorry, mm -hmm. praying about this issue. 
And we've just seen, we've seen fruit from that because we've seen God move, but we've also seen the effect of prayer on people yeah. and how God works on us through prayer. Mm. Um, so Isaac, Isaac was onto something with that, uh, with that emphasis. I think he was, this might be potentially an obvious question, but, and you're like, how long do you have? But, <laughs> um, what are some of the things that we should be praying for? Ooh. Um, <laughs> To back up and contextualize, I mean, what we are, the reason I, I think prayer is so important is because what we want for society, for ourselves, for our churches, cities, organizations, is something more than we can accomplish because we want redemption and we want sanctification and we want changed hearts. Mm -hmm. And I am not competent to affect that change. Now, with that, I also want a fair society, better laws, that sort of thing. And I think folks can kind of pit those things against each other. Like, are we talking about loving our neighbor? Are we talking about, you know, reforming criminal justice? Well, mm -hmm. let's do both. Yeah. Like, I, I don't, I, depending on your wiring, you might be drawn to one of those things instead of the other. And that's great. Like, but yeah, so... I think uh, as we pray about these things, we can uh, pray for sort of our natural burdens and how God has wired us. So maybe you really care about the justice system or maybe you really care about food deserts and, you know, the health consequences of that for our kids, you know, um, mm -hmm. depending on who you are. And, and as you learn more, you'll you'll learn more ways to pray. You know, yeah. God will God will make that clear to you as you as you dig in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like I like what you said about even what it does to our hearts as we yeah. pray. I mean, I've experienced that over the last year with 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 a group of people at work praying for praying for this issue. I mean, it's it definitely has impacted me. Um, I do want to dig into some of your story. You mentioned okay. that you were in a interracial marriage. The one of the first articles I read by you, what's it called? Why this guy at the cookout? That would, that's it. I got to hear that story. <laughs> uh, so my now wife of five years next month. Um, she and I were friends for a couple of years before we started dating. And it was one of those things, everybody was trying to uh, set us up and we're both kind of stubborn. And that probably delayed us getting together. <laughs> People would have just left well enough alone. I think it would have happened sooner. Um, but we started dating and I went to church with her and her parents and her sister. We all went to, all went to the same church. So I knew them. Um, but I, I hadn't been to like a family gathering. And so I attended their Memorial day cookout as the boyfriend, yeah, the white boyfriend. <laughs> and, uh, I knew at this point, um, that I wanted to marry her mm -hmm. and I wanted to make a really good impression with her family. And, uh, I was nervous, you know, how it is meeting meeting folks of significant other and i walk in and because my wife and i had been friends she's eaten at my house a lot of times like she's been over for cookouts and that sort of thing um but i arrive separately from her and i walk in and sort of the first thing i hear when i when i get in is my wife volunteering me for grill duty and i look up like panicked and <laughs> there's a line of 
uncles and cousins sitting on the couch, staring at me, looking thoroughly unimpressed. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm handed a set of tongs and told to cook for the family. So, wow. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but, that, I'm, but I'm still here. You are still here. I mean, the, yeah, that's a lot of pressure. Um, but, but I mean, the article was, we, we sit here and, and laugh and, and clearly it all worked out and everything, but you had some, I know it was written a little while ago, but you had some good, um, some good like challenges in there and, and you may not remember exactly like what you wrote, but you wrote an article on it. Like what was, what was, what was the meaning or the purpose or what can we learn from that story? I mean, for me meeting my wife's family, um, by this point I've had, you know, many years of cross-cultural multi-ethnic friendships. Um, and so it wasn't, it wasn't that, that wasn't the loudest bell in my ear, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. But I just, I wrote some tips for, for engaging in that type of friendship. And, and, uh, the, the tips I remember are be yourself. Mm -hmm. First of all, like God hasn't called you to be somebody you're not. And man, that can make it awkward. I've seen interactions with like, you know, folks trying to probably meaning really well, but like, uh, <laughs> trying a handshake they don't know or <laughs> using words they don't normally use yeah. to try and fit in or even changing their voice and the way they talk and their cadence to try and, and, uh, I mean, just be yourself. And then with that, be the most humble version of yourself. Like, um, I think for some folks, there's a barrier to this type of friendships because they don't want to say the wrong thing. They don't want to make things awkward. Like they don't want to offend without meaning to. And, if I can just replace that fear with certainty, like you're going to yeah. at some point. Yeah. And if you're humble, then that's going to be a lot less of a big deal. Like if you assume that you're never going to mess up and you're never going to accidentally offend and you're proud about it, then when it does happen and you need to be corrected, you're not going to receive it well. Yeah. But, you know, expect the best, best of folks, expect them to be gracious and, you know, expect to learn. Hmm. That's good. Be yourself. Yeah. You, you don't want to be that person that's, that's <sighs> adjusting. That's painful to watch. Um, yeah, I think that that's really good advice. And also I like how you said, I can give you the certainty that you, <laughs> that you will mess up. Yeah. And, and humility is super important within all of this. So going back to college when you had, um, some black friends for the first time now, um, with your wife being black, I'm curious, is that, um, like, are you, we talked about some of the burden that you felt for some of your friends Yeah. now a much deeper level with it being like your spouse. Is that and my stuff, kids? Yeah. And your kids, like, is that, I feel like you have got to feel that on like a deeper an even deeper level. I'm, I'm just curious if y'all oh, yeah. had some ever hardships in, in that area. Um, I mean, I would say as an interracial couple, my wife and I have had an unusually easy time. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of white folks would be floored by the percentage of interracial couples who um, experience like real significant pushback from family. Mm. Um, whether that's whether that persists into marriage or is just during dating, but like it's it's really hard. Wow. for most interracial couples with their families. Wow. Um, it hasn't been for us. And um, 
I mean, we've had some stuff. We've been yelled at at gas stations. People get real brave when they're driving off. Um, but we, we haven't had a very hard time with that. I sort of didn't realize my capacity for worry mm-hmm. until I had kids. Like I had no idea I had that much worry in me. Yeah. Um, but man, I, um, I get emotional talking about this, but I, I worry about my son and even like he's, he's 10 months, but I worry about him getting pulled over and I know what has happened, what can happen. And I remember what I was like as a teenager. Mm -hmm. Um, I had the heaviest foot. Yeah. And I think I've been pulled over 31 times. Wow. Actually. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) That's that's unbelievable. Yeah. And I haven't been pulled over in, uh, in 10 years. (laughs) That's, that is a stat. I love that. Um, got real good at talking to judges. Um, anyway, uh, I, I, I worry about that with him and I, you know, I worry about my daughter, I worry about my wife and, um, I'll say it like this for a lot of white folks, part of what folks talk about with white privilege is you don't have to think about race. Mm-hmm. Don't have to. Um, it's, it's not going to be your reality. Um, it's not going to be something that you've you're confronted with unless you seek it out unless mm-hmm. you, you're doing that research and sort of trying to have those cross-cultural friendships um but i've i've opted in in a different way and you know whether i'm working for united we pray or not like this is it for me like yeah. this is this is my life um yeah and i'm i wouldn't have it any other way mm. well praise god for you and, and what you're doing and the impact that i know you're able to have and um just be be praying over the next 15 years for your son um you know before he's driving one let's make sure he doesn't have a heavy foot like you uh, yeah I, I i hope he has more brains than me <laughs> oh man um well i know we don't have much time here but one of the things that i that i know this is another question that you could talk quite a lot about but we are heading into 2024 in fact yeah. by the time this episode comes out it will be 2024 and i know that happens to be an election year and I believe you mentioned that we learned a few things about ourselves as Christians in 2020 when it came to the election. I mean, what maybe what are some things as Christians that we can be on the lookout for? I don't know if that's the right way to ask the question, but I'm sure yeah. you have thoughts on the subject. Well, <laughs> we actually earlier today, we recorded an episode with Pastor Derwin Gray on political idolatry. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's written really well about that. Um, got his book around here somewhere, but uh, he, he's got a book, How to Heal Our Racial Divide. And he talks about political idolatry being a huge issue for the American church. And I think he's spot on in that, you know, we we invest too much of our hope and our joy and our peace in our politics mm-hmm. and whether our preferred candidate, our preferred party is in power. And that's not good for us. And it's not good for our neighbors because we won't love our neighbors well. And especially on this issue, there's there's lots of stats you can look at, but we live very different lives and that makes us vote differently because we are diagnosing the problems of the world differently. Mm. And we need to have a lot more grace with those we disagree with politically mm. or this conversation doesn't even start. Yeah. Because um, according to polling data, and I can get you the links, um, among those who self-identify as religiously observant, 
and who back that up then with church attendance, for example, um, there's a huge divide. Uh, so the most religiously observant demographic in the United States is black women. Mm. They are, they are in church more than anybody else. Mm -hmm. uh, overwhelmingly vote democratic. Mm -hmm. uh, the next most religiously observant group is white women. Um, and they overwhelmingly vote Republican. And those, those track across male and female, but uh, it's, when we when we can't disagree well about politics like that's that's a hurdle we can't get over right mm -hmm. like if we're gonna write each other off because of that then we can't deal with the race issue that is on a parallel but separate track from it mm. wow that's some really interesting data right there yeah i'll make sure you get you the links yeah um thank you for sharing that um well, well to round us out here so let's say I'm, you know, I'm a Christian listening to this podcast right now, and this is heavy. This is maybe a little bit different than some of the stuff that I talk about, sure. but don't unsubscribe. Yeah, uh, don't. Uh, <laughs> no, but I'll be gone next week. No, but they're still here uh, listening to this point. What's what's a heart posture that they can begin to pray for, or maybe even just one thing they can do uh, from a prayer standpoint, just to to take a step in in the right direction? Would you say? Um. I mean, humility is so huge, but just a posture of love. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you never get away from God's command to love our neighbors. Who is my neighbor? All of them. Yeah. And that, that parable about the Good Samaritan, which shows the extent to which we are to love, is, as some scholars have called it, a racialized parable. You know, the hero of the story is the guy we're supposed to hate because of his ethnicity. Mm -hmm. And Jesus cuts through all of that. He's not having it. Yeah. And so we might not think about this stuff very often as, you know, white folks. Um, but if we're reading our Bibles carefully, it's in there. Mm -hmm. and it's actually in there a lot. Yeah. This is a priority for God. Yeah. Um, God, God told Abraham that, you know, this covenant would be a blessing to many nations. That word nations is translated in the Septuagint as ethnos. It's mm -hmm. where we get ethnicity from. So God's, God's planning and redeeming a big multi-ethnic family. Mm -hmm. And if that's not on our priority list, then, then something's off and we need to, we need to pray about that. Mm. Hey man. I mean, you couple gut punches in there. Like if we're reading our Bibles, it's in there and loving your neighbor is everyone. Um, I remember you saying that earlier this year and that was definitely impactful for me. I feel like this could go on for, for, for quite some time. I've got more questions here, but I, I really do appreciate you joining me. And I really think that there's somebody, if not multiple people listening to this, that is really going to get them thinking and, and hopefully praying about this issue and maybe even starting conversations with, with different friends or family that they have. So I just really appreciate you sharing that. Well, if I can do the, do the shameless plug to round us out, yeah. uwepray.org. I, I think if you're interested in this conversation, you will find gracious conversation partners with us. We're, mm. we're not trying to yell at folks and, you know, aggravate guilt. We're trying to, we're trying to offer a better way forward. Yeah. Amen. Y'all, y'all definitely check out United We Pray. And, um, I didn't tell you this before this podcast, it's called wake up and lead. And a lot of times when I say lead or leadership, I'm talking about like leading ourselves. And I think a lot of people are 
sort of asleep at the wheel of their own life and they're not mm-hmm. really thinking with intentionality mm-hmm. about how they're living. And so uh, kind of have the fun little pithy line of, hey, it's time to wake up and lead. So normally I end this by saying it's time for you and me. And then you say to wake up and lead. Can we do that? Sure. All right. It's time for you and me to wake up and lead. Let's go.